If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians, starting uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Like last week, we're going to look at that very last thing. So just put your finger in there. Um, a lot of these topics are, are a summary of what the whole Bible has to say about that topic. So we kind of bounce around, but we'll land on that verse at the end. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's page 818. As we continue our series, I almost forgot our weekly tradition, and that is to pull out our bulletin and to look at the, um, the, the second inside page where we have um, our topic for today is, who is Jesus? Yeah, <laughs> could you, Mickey? I forgot to bring my bulletin up here. Thank you. Uh, Jesus, person in life, and um, the kind of explanation says, we believe Jesus Christ is the only one who can lead us into a loving relationship with God and that Jesus alone deserves our full allegiance. And then our memory verse with that is John 14, 6 and 7. So would you say it with me? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Okay, thank you, Mickey. So who is Jesus? 2,000 years have passed and still the question won't go away. Despite the fact that we're supposedly now living in a, a post-Christian culture, the question of, of who Jesus is still shows up with regularity, for example, on the covers of Newsweek and Time magazines. Have you settled the question for yourself? And I'm talking to the believers here as well. Who is Jesus? Do you really know? I once heard a Christian leader say, and I've become more and more convinced that it's true, that the greatest single challenge before the church today is to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because we in the church inevitably come to reflect the concept of Jesus that we believe. So who is Jesus? A nice, loving guy? A comforting shepherd? A stern and holy judge? An enigmatic speaker of parables? An untouchable God-man? A sacrifice on a cross? Who is Jesus? Several years ago, uh, Christian writer Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. The title tells it all. Yancey writes, No one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. Jesus has rocked my own preconceptions and has made me ask hard questions. That was as he was doing the research that resulted in him writing that book. Have you give Jesus, uh, given Jesus enough attention for him to have done that for you? A pastor friend of mine was once talking to a young Muslim man who was opposed to Christianity, but who agreed at this, my friend's prompting to read the Gospel of John. And the young man came back a week later, a changed man, wanting to know how to, to follow Jesus. And when my pastor friend asked him what was the sudden change, the young Muslim said of Jesus, no one ever spoke the way this man speaks. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know who he is? 
Answering that question may be the most important thing that you ever do. And again, I'm talking to those who believe as well as to those who may not. Well, beginning this Sunday and continuing next with Greg Howe, since I'll be away most of this coming week, we're going to be looking at this question. And this morning, we look at who Jesus was and, and the life that he lived. And then next week, Greg will cover his death and what that accomplished. So we begin this morning with Jesus' incarnation. And we call Jesus' birth into the world an incarnation because the New Testament teaches that in Jesus' birth, God took on flesh and came to dwell among us. And immediately we're thrust deeply into mystery and into surprise. Listen to Friedrich Buchner. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of men and women. If the holiness and the awful power and the majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, the birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart, because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong. And just where he, we seem or where we least expect him that he comes most fully. How can it be that God was present in Mary's womb? That God showed up in the midst of straw and dirt and cold? We're immediately thrust here into a mystery so deep that it took the church hundreds of years to hammer out how even to talk about it. And as I mentioned in, in last Sunday's sermon, even the first disciples weren't quick to understand fully who this Jesus was and what had happened in his coming to earth. I mean, it's so obvious and, and easy for us to take for granted that Jesus is God because the Christian church has been mouthing those words for almost 2,000 years now. But, but for those who knew Jesus during his lifetime, this truth was far from evident. In fact, it was nearly impossible because as we saw last week, Jews believed, and all of Jesus' first followers were Jewish, Jews believed that God was the, the only holy God, invisible, untouchable, unapproachable. And Jesus was nothing like that. Jesus was, was so human. He, he ate, he drank, he, he cried, he laughed, he, he sweated, he, he bathed, and like everyone else, he needed to. It was only after Jesus rocked his disciples' worlds repeatedly by calming storms and forgiving sins and, and giving divine commands and accepting worship from people and, and, and claiming to be one with God. It was only after all this that, that it began to slowly dawn on his disciples that in Jesus, the impossible had become reality, that, that God had become a man. 
And in the decades and the centuries after the original disciples had told their stories and given their testimony about Jesus, the, the church continued to wrestle with this seemingly impossible reality that in Jesus, God should be a man. And if this was difficult for the Jews to grasp, it was even more difficult for the Greeks. You see, the Greeks ha- were... were um, deeply influenced by Plato and and by others who taught that that the realm of of the ideal and and the theoretical and the the spiritual was was far superior and and preferable to to the real, tangible, and and fleshly stuff of life on earth. In fact, they would even say this stuff was real. And so the goal of religion and of salvation for the Greeks was to somehow escape from this world and, and, and to get to a better spiritual world. And so given that, the idea that that God, the perfect, pure, spiritual one, would come down and actually become part of this dirty and and painful and, and sinful world, it was ludicrous and it was offensive to the Greeks. And so for the early church who were raised and steeped first in the Jewish and then in the Greek culture, they, they really struggled with this idea that, that somehow both God and humanity could touch and could connect in the person of Jesus. But you know, even all that mental and cultural baggage aside, it's a struggle to understand Jesus, isn't it? I mean, you, you read the stories about Jesus and, and sometimes he seems so powerful and so divine and, and other times he seems so, so earthy and so human. One minute he's calming storms and he's casting out demons and the next minute he's hungry or he's, he's falling asleep. In one village, God's power is with him to heal many sick and, and in the next, he can't do many miracles there. With one woman, he knows her whole life story before she tells him. And with another, he's asking questions, trying to figure out who she is who touched him. And what about Jesus' death? If, if Jesus is God, immortal and indestructible, how could he die? Well, over the centuries and the millennia, followers of Jesus have, have found various ways of, of, of dealing with these, these problems and these difficulties. And, and some have done it by downplaying Jesus' divinity. And others have done it by downplaying his humanity. And I want to look at some of their ideas. I've got a graphic for each one. In the first group, those who who um, downplay his divinity, of course, there are always have been those who say that Jesus wasn't God at all, that he was uh, just a good man. I mean, how could a man be God? No, Jesus was, was a good man, and either God empowered him to do all these miracles, or, or uh, Jesus didn't really do them. They're just old legends. Well, it's amazing that this option persists, because C.S. Lewis put it to rest over half a century ago. He, he points out that, that according to the only records that we have about Jesus, Jesus himself claimed again and again to be much more than just a good man. So as Lewis puts it famously, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us 
He did not intend to. Well, then there are the adoptionists who claim that Jesus had been just a man, but that he became God. As Jesus grew up, as he lived his first 30 years of earthly life, as he then went out into the desert and he was tempted by Satan and he, he overcame those temptations, God was, was so impressed with this young man that, that at Jesus' baptism, God adopted him into his family and, and bestowed Godship on him. Then there are the Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses hold this uh, view today. They believe that the Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, but, but they define Son of God differently. They say the Son of God isn't really God. Rather, the Son of God was the first creature that God made before God made anything else. The greatest thing that God, God ever made was, was this creature, and, and this creature, the Son of God, later came down and became incarnate, human in Jesus. Then there are those who hold to uh, various versions of the kenosis theory. And, and there are lots of those folks around today. They believe that Jesus is God, but that when he came down to become human, he took off some of his divine powers. That he, he kind of put them in storage for, for uh, the, the time during which he was on earth as, as a man. And so these folks believe that Jesus is kind of God-like, maybe, you could say. God without all of the, the power and the knowledge that God has in heaven. And so there, very quickly, are four views, there's others, but four views of, of who Jesus is which aren't comfortable with him being fully divine in one way or another. And so they, in various ways, cut back on his godness. There's a second group who, who take the opposite approach. We'll, we'll just look at three of those really quickly. They hold on to Jesus' divinity, but they try to deny or diminish his humanity. So the monophysitists for example, believe that Jesus' finite human nature must have been basically swallowed up by his infinite divine nature, like, like a drop of water in a vast ocean. Then there are the docetists. They believe that Jesus wasn't really human at all. He looked human, but that was a total illusion. It was a facade. Really, Jesus is just God. And by the way, this kind of thinking stands behind some of the other Gospels out there um, that we sometimes hear about, like the Gospel of Peter, uh, which weren't included in the Bible. And that's the reason they weren't included. One of the reasons, at least. Well, finally, related to the Docetists are the Apollinarians. And they believe that Jesus was God in a human body, that, that God wore Jesus' human body like a costume. So, so Jesus had a human body, but his personality, his mind, his will were all really just divine. And, you know, I would suspect that many of us tend to be Apollinarians today. Because I think if we get off balance at all, it's that we don't fully appreciate Jesus' humanity. We're, we're so afraid of those who want to deny Jesus' divinity that we wind up going too, too far the other way and downplaying his humanity. We, we kind of treat Jesus as God in a human body, kind of walking three feet off the ground above the real problems and limitations of humanity. We're not comfortable with the idea that Jesus was weak, that, that sometimes he was ignorant, that, that he felt tempted to sin. But we've got to come to grips with the picture of Jesus that the New Testament actually gives us. 
Jesus got angry. Jesus cried. Jesus got deeply distressed. He struggled with doing God's will. He wanted friends near him to be with him and and, and to pray with him and for him. He depended on some rich women to provide for his needs. One time he was confronted with a boy who had an evil spirit and he asked, how long has he been like this? He, He didn't seem to always know everything that was going on around him. He likely didn't know that in 1492, Columbus would sail the ocean blue or that E equals MC squared. Now, the problem with with modern Apollinarianism is that we look at Jesus and we're so impressed at how courageous he was and how wise he was and how much scripture he knew and how well he knew God the Father and and how well he heard the Father's voice and and the miracles he performed and his power to cast out demons. And and then we read the Bible and we, we read that we're supposed to imitate him. And we just throw up our hands and we say, that's impossible. I mean, Jesus was God, and I'm not. Well, that's a very Apollinarian thing to say. But it's not biblical, because the biblical truth is that Jesus is fully human, just like we are. And if he did miracles, if he had a deep connection with God, to a large extent, it was because he took time to get to know God. He submitted himself fully to God's will and, and, and all of his scripture knowledge and, and his wisdom wasn't just because he was God and he wrote the Bible. No, it was because he studied the Bible. He, he put in the effort and because he had a mother and a father who taught him the Bible. Jesus was who he was in large part because of Mary's influence in his life, because of Joseph's influence, because he grew up in Nazareth on the wrong side of the tracks without TV or cable. Because he lived among the the have-nots, the oppressed, and he was shaped by that. Just like we're shaped by our parents, by our backgrounds. Now, I don't want for a second to diminish Jesus' deity. But I also want to warn us not to diminish his humanity, which I think we far too often do. Because, and now we get to the view that Christians for millennia have held on to as the correct and biblical view about who Jesus is. And that is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That Jesus has two natures, one divine nature, one human nature, and these two natures are united in one person. And I say are united because Jesus didn't throw off his humanity after he died and rose from the grave. The New Testament insists on a bodily resurrection. It insists that Jesus rose from the dead and he was still a man, a glorified man, albeit. In Jesus, a man ascended to heaven and a man is even today reigning and interceding for us at the right hand of God. In Jesus, God took on humanity forever. Now, as I did last week, I want us to look at why all this matters so much. I mean, why split theological hairs? Well, let me give you seven reasons that it matters a lot. First, it matters for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our acceptance by God. 
It matters that when Jesus died on the cross, taking the brunt of God's wrath and and punishment for our sins in our place, it matters that it was really God dying there. And that it was really a man dying there. It matters that that Jesus was really God because no single man is, is big enough to pay for the sins of the whole world. Only God is is big enough to take the place of the multitudes of humanity and and only God is powerful enough to save. It matters that Jesus was really human because it's we humans who've sinned. And the one who dies in our place needs to be one of us, one of our own kind and adequate representative for us. Second, it matters that Jesus is fully God and fully human. It matters for our grasp of God's love. If Jesus wasn't really God, then then it isn't really God who came down and died for us. No, it was a man or it was some exalted creature that God had made to do his bidding. And in this case, God is just like a, a big boss living in Monaco or the Bahamas, living the cushy life while he sends his underlings to do his dirty work. But if God himself came down and suffered and died, then he loves us indeed. Third, it matters for our knowledge of God. If Jesus isn't God, then we don't really know God that much better than we did before Jesus came. God has not walked among us. God has not really come close to us. But if Jesus is God as well as human, then we have seen God like never before. As theologian Karl Rahner has put it, Jesus is is the human face of God. We, as mere human beings, have looked into God's eyes. We have seen him face to face. Fourth, it matters for our comfort when we suffer. If Jesus isn't human, fully human, and divine, then God isn't really one of us. He doesn't really understand what we go through down here. But if Jesus is fully human and fully God, then God has suffered. God has experienced the frail, faulty, filthy realities of human life. God has sweated. God has cried. God has bled. And so God understands. God can empathize. Fifth, it matters for our battle against temptation. If Jesus is not both God and human, then God doesn't really understand what it's like to be tempted to sin. How hard it is sometimes, right, to to, to do what's right when, when everything in us is thirsting and longing for that forbidden fruit. But if Jesus is fully God and fully human, then again, God has been there. God has experienced it. God understands. And so when God says... Come on, you can, you can overcome. God speaks from experience. God knows that we can. Sixth, it matters for our relationship with God. And here's where it gets really deep and wonderful. If Jesus is not fully human and divine, then God has never really embraced us as humans God has maintained an arm's length relationship with his creation. 
But if Jesus is fully God and fully human, then God has embraced us in the deepest way possible. God has become one of us. If Jesus is fully God and fully human, then God has taken up humanity into himself. Then the creator has taken his creation into himself. We talked about the amazing dynamics of the Trinity last week, the, the dance of, of Father, Son, and Spirit that they enjoy together and relating to one another in, in loving union and intimacy and celebration. And if Jesus is both God and human, then God has taken humanity up into the dance, into God's very self forever. But it gets even better than that. Because as we saw last week, God hasn't just taken the humanity of Jesus into himself. No, the New Testament makes clear that if our faith is in Christ, then we are in Christ. And in Christ and through the Spirit, we are taken into the Trinity too. Through the Spirit, we share in the Son's relationship with the Father. Jesus puts it this way in John 17 when he prays to the Father for us. He, listen to this. He says, Father... Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Did you hear that? May they also be in us. Doesn't that just blow your mind? In Jesus, creator is forever united with his creation. God is forever united with humanity. God has embraced us, has drawn us in, in the closest way possible. So how do we respond to this amazing reality? Well, seventh, we realize that the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human matters to the way we live our lives and and, and what it means to be human. I touched on this earlier. If, if Jesus is only God and, and not man, then we can write his, his life off as an untouchable ideal. But if Jesus is fully human too, then, then his example is actually meant to be followed and emulated. Then he has the same flesh and bone then, that we have. That he faced the same temptations. He, he experienced the same emotions. He, he prayed to the same Father. He, he relied on the same the empowerment of the same Spirit. And so we can aspire to be like him. And if this is the case, then Jesus meant it when he said, Very truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Let me show you what's going on here. Several weeks ago, we looked at the topic of humanity when Greg Howe was here. And we, we saw that we're created in God's own image, right? But, but then the next week, we looked at sin and we saw that the image of God in us has become bent and warped and twisted and marred, tarnished. But not in Jesus. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the one true human being. Jesus shows us what it means to be a genuine, authentic human being made in the image of God as God originally meant us to be. 
So that's why the gospel doesn't just the gospels don't just tell us about Jesus' death. It's why they, they also spend so much time telling us about Jesus' life. Because in Jesus' life, we see what a human life well lived looks like. We see what a true human person looks like. And so when we imitate Jesus, we are becoming more human. We're becoming we're coming to reflect more truly the image of what God is like. So as Rick Watts, a former professor of mine, once put it, people should be able to look at us Jesus followers and say, so that's what God is like. Why? Because what does it mean to be human? It means to be like God. And what does God look like? God looks like Jesus. To be truly human is to be like Jesus. All right, so in closing, here's the challenge I want to leave with you. Get to know who Jesus is. You call yourself a Christian, get to know the Christ. Not just that he died for your sins. Oh, that's so important. Yes, get to know that. Reflect on that every day of your life. But also reflect, get to know who he was in the life he lived. Spend time visiting Jesus' Facebook pages. He's got four of them, you know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Friend him. Spend time looking at his wall. Because as we get to know Jesus better, Scripture promises that we'll become like him. And by the way, in the discussion group, we'll, we'll talk more about some ways to read the Gospels to get to know Jesus. But, but listen, let's end on 2 Corinthians 3.18. Listen to what Scripture says. It says, And we all who with unveiled faces, the older translations say reflect, the newer translations say contemplate, which is perhaps a better translation, contemplate, gaze upon, mull over, meditate on, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And Paul here is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord's glory. As we gaze on Jesus, as we get to know Jesus, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. I want to tell a little story to illustrate this. I've told it before. It's from Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous short story, The Face on the Mountain. A young boy stares at this, this face that's carved in granite on this mountain, and he regularly asks tourists who come to this town near the mountain if they know the identity of the face on the mountain. And, and no one does. And, and into manhood and, and midlife and old age, this guy continues to, to gaze at this face, every opportunity he gets, this face on the mountain. Until one day a tourist who's passing through exclaims at the once young boy who's now a weather-beaten old man, he says, you are the face on the mountain. That's what happens when we gaze long enough on Jesus. We come to look more and more like him. Finally, a story that Tony Campolo tells, and I can't remember if I've told you this before, but it bears repeating if I have. It's a story about um, a belligerent, homeless wino named Joe who lived not far from here down in Manhattan. Everyone had, had written him off as totally beyond hope. But then he was marvelly, marvelously converted at a Bowery mission. And um, 
Joe's transformation was, was so great that, that it stunned everyone who knew him. And, and he became the most caring and gentle person that anyone at the mission had ever known. He spent his days and his nights volunteering at the mission, serving the homeless, serving the drunks, and serving the, the other workers and employees at the mission as well. He'd do any job from, from cleaning up vomit to, to scrubbing reeking toilets. He was just grateful to be able to help. He'd often be found feeding feeble street men or, or gently tucking them into bed, men who were too un, unebri, inebriated to undress and take care of themselves. And one Sunday at the mission, an evangelist was giving the usual gospel appeal to a group of sullen men in the chapel. And, and at the end, one man shuffled forward to the altar and he, he knelt down to pray. And, and he started crying out, Oh God, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. And the director of the mission leaned over and said, Ah, oh, son, I, I think it would be better if you prayed, make me like Jesus. And the man looked up at the director with, with a quizzical expression on his face and asked, Is he like Joe? Would that one day they would be able to say that about each one of us. Because that's why Jesus came. 